So it's great to have Dr. Clark join us again today and to go deeper into some of the things we touched on in the first episode. Dr. Clark. Great to be with you, Rob. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure to be here. How's your day going? You know, I'm in Portland, Oregon today, and it's beautiful. We don't always get beautiful weather, as you know, in the northwest part of uh, North America, but uh, at least in Portland today, it's gorgeous. Great. That's awesome. I'm here in Vancouver, and the weather is pretty gray. It's cloudy, uh, nothing too exciting, but hopefully the sunshine comes in in the next few weeks. That would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, so um, before I ask you some questions that I've prepared, and maybe before we get into a few case studies, if you don't mind, um, of uh, these protocols and these um, psychotherapy tools that you've used before or recommended for other people that have benefited them greatly, before we talk about some specific examples again, um, could you just briefly outline the mind-body connection and how many people suffering from chronic physical pain could be uh, suffering from what is essentially a psychological disorder that's manifesting in the body instead? Yeah, it's psychological cause, uh, but definitely a physiological process. Uh, that's why the my colleagues and I, searching for a name for our nonprofit, uh, <clears throat> decided to call it the Psychophysiologic Association because it's a blend of psychology and physiology. You know, it's natural for uh, people who are experiencing a symptom to focus on the part of their body that is experiencing that symptom. It's also how most healthcare professionals were trained is to you know look for the organ or the body part or the structure. Uh, that is responsible for the symptom um, at the location of the symptom. But it turns out that a substantial fraction of people who are suffering an illness or chronic pain, um, the symptoms are being generated elsewhere. They are, in fact, being generated by the brain. Um, The classic example, and we probably talked about this uh, previously, is phantom limb pain, where a person can feel pain at the location of a limb that has been amputated, a limb that is no longer there. And the only place pain can be uh, coming from in that situation is the brain. Uh, but it turns out the brain can do this um, in people with intact bodies uh, all over from head to toe. Um, and it does this because the brain has been anatomically rewired. And this has been shown with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging studies. Uh, When you inflict experimental pain on people uh, who have these um, psychophysiologic disorders, or PPD for short, the parts of their brain that light up on the fMRI scan are different than the parts of the brain that light up in healthy people, people who don't have this condition. So there's a real anatomic reason why people get these things. But behind the anatomic changes in the brain's anatomy uh, are stresses, Uh, stresses that may be present in the person's life at the moment. Uh, They may be stresses from the past. They may be traumas. They may be uh, significant negative emotions that people don't recognize they have. They might be triggers of some kind. 
um, but some kind of psychological stress. Uh, and again, there are many different uh, uh, different kinds that can be responsible. Uh, but if we can identify what those stresses are, we can almost always treat them successfully. And then we see the person's symptoms improve, um, sometimes dramatically. Um, so it's a branch of medicine that has not received the attention it deserves. There are tens of millions of people in North America that suffer from this. Uh, it's entirely treatable. Uh, and we've known about this you know, for a long time. There was a famous speech uh, at Harvard 100 years ago where all of this was laid out. Um, but we've lost sight of that wisdom uh, in the tsunami of technology that's overtaken healthcare. And my colleagues and I are trying to get us back to that, trying to get us back to the basics of assessing people for the stresses in their lives and getting very rewarding success when we do that. And how can one know that the cause of their chronic pain is something psychological rather than physiological? What are some of the key signs? Yeah, we wish we had a blood test um, that could give us that answer. Uh, but, you know, it all starts with going to your doctor and getting the diagnostic test to make sure there isn't an organ disease or a structural abnormality. Now, if you take everybody that goes to their physician for a symptom, whether it's chronic pain or something else, uh, about 40% of them, just right off the bat, before any tests are done, uh, 40% of them will have a, a psychophysiologic cause for their symptoms, a brain-generated symptom. And if they get the, uh, the usual diagnostic tests for whatever symptom it is that they have, and those tests don't show a structural abnormality or an organ disease, then that probability of it being a psychophysiologic disorder goes up significantly. Um, it also goes up if the person has more than one symptom at a time, especially if those symptoms are in different parts of the body or have a different quality to them. Um, if their symptoms migrate from place to place, um, that's another clue that it's a PPD going on, a psychophysiologic disorder. Um, if the symptoms are not uh, flaring up consistently, um, that's another clue. In other words, if you are sitting in a chair in the office and your back begins to hurt and gets worse and worse as you're sitting there, but you can sit in a chair at home and feel fine, um, or if you have symptoms um, during the course of your life but not when you're on vacation, um, that would be another clue that you've got a psychophysiologic cause. Uh, so there are, there are a lot of them. We've got a questionnaire uh, on our website, uh, website is endchronicpain.org, uh, that's got uh, two questionnaires at the moment. We're going to boil it down to one questionnaire in the near future that can help people um, figure out if their symptoms fit the usual context that we see in people with a psychophysiologic cause. Um, the first questionnaire, the more of those questions to which you answer yes, the more likely it is that you have a psychophysiologic cause for your symptoms. And the second questionnaire is one that looks for hidden stresses in people's lives, people stresses that uh, are not fully recognized or the magnitude of the stress a person is coping with is not fully recognized. And the higher your score on that questionnaire, 
again, the more likely it is that uh, you've got a psychophysiologic cause, especially if your doctor can't find uh, a problem or if you're not responding uh, with improvement to the usual treatments that are expected to bring about improvement. Interesting. Um, I also just want to say that a few people contacted me before this episode and they had some questions. Um, and one person um, as well who right now has some questions. So anybody who's listening right now who wants to ask any burning questions, uh, feel free to come on the stage. I've invited everyone to speak. So you can come and do that uh, right now if you would like and uh, pose your questions to Dr. Clark. I think Pedro had couple of questions here yeah you bet all right pedro hey hey dr clark can you hear me all right yeah pedro coming loud and clear um i just had a quick question regarding or with regards to sort of um uh misdiagnosing or or, or um you know at times i tend to think that you know sometimes i can have it all figured out and i have the exact psychosomatic issue that's going on and and um, was curious if you think that there is sort of some risk or, um, uh, or or if you've heard of people who can actually sort of misdiagnose themselves and um, and potentially do more harm. Is that is that something that you've you found in your practice? Well, you definitely don't want to be uh, diagnosing yourself or uh, consulting Dr. Google, as so many people do. Right. Uh, as your only way of figuring out what your symptoms are or what's wrong. You know, you really need to have a, a professional healthcare evaluation, diagnostic testing um, to um, get as much certainty as we can that there's no organ disease or structural abnormality uh, responsible. And, and even then, I mean, I have patients where we don't find anything with the initial testing and we begin using the psychological treatment techniques that have worked with you know thousands of my patients over the last 40 years. Um, but if the patient doesn't improve the way I expect them to, then I have to rethink it and I have to uh, decide, well, you know, have I missed something? Is, is there a, another condition, perhaps a rare one, an unusual one um, that I should be testing for? Uh, just to make sure, because, you know, the diagnostic tests are not perfect, and there's always a chance that um, something else could be going on that we've missed uh, or that might have been too mild uh, or uh, insignificant to be detected by the test to the first go-around. Um, one of my patients was the the mayor of a small town, uh, you know, in uh, my community, near near my community, and he had had tests for two years where nothing showed up and uh, the psychological treatments uh, for the stresses he was struggling with weren't helping him. So we went back and we did one of the uh, the same tests he had had before a second time and we found a uh, an ulcer that was cancerous uh, that simply had not been there before. Uh, so there, there are always uh, exceptions to this, but uh, the vast majority of people with the diagnostic tests that we have available today, uh, if those are negative, um, then the probability of your having a, a psychophysiologic cause uh, is very high. And that would be the, uh, the next focus of treatment that I would recommend. And then if people start to improve with, uh, you know, the very solid 
psychotherapeutic uh, techniques that we have available today, um, that's going to be further evidence that you're on the right track. Got it. Very helpful. And then I have one more question that isn't um, uh, that is not related to what I just asked. Um, but in, in your mind, what are some of the 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 most important things that that society might be too sort of sweeping of a term? But it, I found it really interesting that you mentioned that that there was a Harvard speech given about a hundred years ago talking about this type of work. Um, what 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 went wrong? Yeah, it's it's a good question. The um, the hardest thing I think is that you know in when we train healthcare professionals, we kind of divide them uh, into people that focus on organs and structures and people that focus on psychology, and there really isn't much overlap in the training of the two. Uh, even though the mind and the body are intimately connected, I mean anybody who's ever blushed with embarrassment. Anybody who's ever felt a knot in their abdomen when they're in a tense situation knows that the, the brain and the body are connected, the mind and the body are connected. But we don't train our healthcare professionals that way. Um, the medical folks don't learn about the psychological issues that can cause, you know, real chronic pain or, uh, you know, bowel problems or dizziness or visual disturbances. You know, there's a whole long list of physical symptoms. Um, that can be caused by stress, but we don't we don't teach our medical professionals that. And then on the other side, uh, the mental health professionals um, are you know very well trained in dealing with mental health disorders. But when it comes to people who are having physical symptoms, um, that's kind of where they draw the line. That hasn't been part of their training. Um, when they hear about somebody who's got a, who's got a physical symptom, their first inclination. Uh, and their second and their third inclination is to send them back to their doctor for uh, further evaluation. So patients with PPD fall into this giant blind spot in the healthcare system because um, the, the two groups really need to have um, more education in each other's areas of expertise so they can collaborate. And that's starting to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm with an organization um called the Collaborative Family Healthcare Organization. And that's what they're all about, uh, is having mental health people right there in the clinic with the doctors uh, so that they can uh, both see the same patients at the same time and uh, collaborate with each other, teach each other uh, about their areas of expertise. And it works beautifully. Um, the, the physicians, when they find out about this, suddenly have uh, 40% of their patients who used to be a tremendous source of frustration and burnout, and all of a sudden, they become among the most rewarding because uh, these are patients who get better, and that's what we're all in the business for, is to see um, people who are suffering uh, experience improvement. And with these techniques, that's exactly what we see. Awesome. Awesome. That's, I'll, I'm, I'm going to keep listening. I'm sure I'll have more questions, but I really appreciate your work and, um, uh, and keep, keep it up. It's great. Thank you for your question, Pedro. All right. So one, one thing I was thinking about was a, a skeptic could push back against the kind of work you do and say, like, there is no like study or some general effectiveness of a particular treatment for treating psychosomatic pain. And I think like that's because psychosomatic pain is so 
um, variable. It's not just one thing. There could be so many different causes for it. It's not, you know, B is the problem and C is the solution. It's very subjective and there can be many different causes for it. So that sort of makes certain people kind of skeptical of this whole field because there is no easy solution to these things. There is no drug. There is no medicine. There is no one month protocol that if you follow, you will, there's 90% chance that you will get better, right? So do you understand that kind of frustration or skepticism people might have when trying to look at um, some of these psychosomatic solutions? Yeah, until five years ago, there was some truth to that. And I, you know, all I could come back with was say, you know, I've been doing this since 1982. And I've treated over 7,000 patients. And, uh, you know, some of them have gotten better dramatically quickly. Others have needed years of psychotherapy to achieve the same results. Um, but everybody gets on the path of uh, improvement and uh, they finally have a diagnosis they can believe in and a course of treatment that's going to lead to um, their getting better over time. Uh, but in the last five years, we have had the gold standard of science applied to this field, which is the randomized controlled trial. And these are with the new psychotherapeutic techniques and concepts uh, that have been developed, uh, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, um, we're seeing a dramatic results of vast uh, improvements over the, the former standards of cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy that are uh, now essentially obsolete. Uh, the new techniques, uh, I'll just give you one example, the Boulder Back Pain Study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, Psychology Psychiatry Journal just last September. They took three groups of patients with uh, chronic back pain, and uh, there were two control groups and one uh, psychotherapy treatment group, and they only got eight sessions of this psychotherapy. Um, an hour each uh, over a month. These are people who'd had back pain for an average of 10 years, and their pain scores went from four or five down to one in one month. So you have to picture these patients, 10 years of four or five out of 10 back pain. Uh, and then with eight sessions of the, this new psychotherapy called pain reprocessing therapy, um, the pain goes down to one, and it stays there for a whole year. And the two control groups, um, you know, essentially were unchanged. They had one that got an, an actual injection into the spine, uh, which is a pretty powerful placebo. And the other group was just um, usual care. So they didn't get anything special. Um, and those two groups um, stayed pretty much the same with respect to their pain scores. So, you know, this was a very well carefully conducted study um, that showed a dramatic uh, change in outcome. And the same was done at one of the, you know one of the Harvard hospitals in Boston, uh, also with back pain patients, um, using another new form of psychotherapy that uh, called emotional awareness and expression therapy. All of these therapies have a goal of alleviating pain. It's not just to help you live with it; it's to help actually alleviate it by getting at the underlying causes, which can be traumas, triggers, uh, unexpressed uh, negative emotions. Um, getting those, uh, you know, put into words, getting people to cognitively understand uh, in detail the stresses that they're coping with. And once you can start talking about those, once you can put those 
um, emotions and stresses and traumas and triggers into words, then they don't have to express themselves into your body. Um, and it makes all the difference in the world. And the results have just been dramatic. They were, um, you know, again, the, the Boston study was just as dramatic as uh, the Boulder study. And then there was the um, Los Angeles uh, Veterans Study, uh, where they did a direct comparison of emotional awareness and expression therapy with the now obsolete former standard of cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, the the, uh, the percentage that of patients, and these were older male veterans, people in, you know in their seventies, extremely difficult group of people to to help. And the uh, the benefit of the new form of therapy was eight times better than the cognitive behavioral therapy. The percentage of patients that reached the uh, level of improvement that they were shooting for was eight times higher. It was 42% versus 5%. Um, you know, nothing like this has ever been seen uh, in pain research before. And it's all because we're going after, like I say, the emotions, the stresses, the traumas, the triggers, um, helping people to see those things in their lives, the role that they're playing in their lives. Uh, the role of adverse childhood experiences is huge. Um, you know, a majority of my patients um, suffered treatment as children that they would never want for their own kids, for example. And when we help people to see that, see the long-term impact that it's had, begin to put those uh, concepts into words, um, symptoms improve. Um, you know, it's it's amazing. It's It's truly wonderful. And that's why I've got such a passion for this work. And the Boulder Back study that you mentioned, that's with Alan Gordon, correct? Uh, Alan Gordon and uh, Christy Weepy uh, were the uh, two therapists who uh, did the treatment. Uh, the leader of the study was uh, a psychologist uh, named Yoni Ashar, who's um, coming back to the Denver area um, to, uh, to practice, and he's going to do um, more research in this field. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a whole team, and then it, the uh, uh, research scientist uh, who was uh, directing it behind the scenes was Tor Wager, who's currently at Dartmouth, I believe, who's uh, done landmark research with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging study, uh, imaging um, of the brain, and his part of the study um, showed that the psychotherapy actually changed uh, brain anatomy in the Boulder Back Pain Study. So this new form of psychotherapeutic treatment was reversing some of the uh, neuroanatomic changes that were responsible wow. for pain. Wow. That's incredible. But in the Alan Gordon method that he that was used in the study, um, that doesn't go into any depth in emotions or traumas. Am I right? The pain reprocessing therapy, that's all about changing your relationship to the pain and dissociating your, um, dissociating the pain from your feelings and your thoughts about it. Um, so those, those extraordinary results in that study were only for uh, changing your perception of the pain, but had very, but did not use any sort of therapies to reprocess one's childhood or previous traumas that they've lived. Is that correct? 
Well, there wasn't a uh, direct focus on that, but the uh, the process of pain reprocessing therapy often leads to some of that with um, many of the patients because they're being asked to um, recognize that the pain they're experiencing is not coming about because of damage to their body, that the pain is generated by the brain. And once you recognize that that process is happening in your body, you, you can't escape the idea that um, something has caused your brain to be rewired in this way that is producing these symptoms. And that leads people to start to think about the stresses in their lives uh, that may have been responsible for their brain being rewired. And once you start thinking in those terms, once the uh, attention that you have around your symptoms shifts from the place in your body where you're feeling it uh, to um, thinking about what might be the stress or stresses that has produced this in the first place, um, then that leads to people getting a greater understanding. So even though, uh, strictly speaking, pain reprocessing therapy doesn't focus on the emotions as much as emotional awareness and expression therapy, for a lot of people, um, that's, that's all they need is just shifting that focus of their attention away from the body and uh, onto some introspection about where the stresses might be coming from. And, you know, the, the treatments that, that are uh, working for people in this field have a they, kind of a spectrum to them. You know, some people will improve, uh, for example, just by reading a book on this topic. And there are a number of them now um, that are evidence-based and that can provide people with uh, highly useful information. Other people, you know, need one of these forms of psychotherapy. Pain reprocessing therapy is kind of the the first level, um, one of the, the simplest forms of treatment. Uh, and then if that's not sufficient, then the next level uh, would be the uh, to get into the emotions, that's the adverse childhood experiences, the, uh, the traumas, the triggers um, in, in more detail. So, you know, everybody's different. The level of severity of stresses that people are coping with is different. Um, and so these new forms of treatment kind of come at you in a um, graduated format, uh, you might say. Um, and so that if the, the simpler one, pain reprocessing therapy, proves not to be enough for you or uh, you get initial relief but suffer some relapses, uh, then the next level um, would be the emotional awareness and expression. Uh, and there's still a third one that's got excellent research behind it and overlaps a lot with the first two I've been talking about. And that one was developed in, largely in Canada uh, and is called Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy. Um, but it, uh, there aren't as many practitioners of that uh, available. Uh, so I, I tend not to talk about it as much. And it's not, not one that I personally am trained in. Do you also know about IFS, Internal Family Systems? Yeah, Internal Family Systems is a, a great way of um, helping people understand uh, what their um, childhood adversity might have been all about and how it's affecting them today and um, how it might be uh, causing triggers uh, to happen in a person's life today. Um, so yeah, there's, it, it's not one that was developed 
specifically to alleviate physical symptoms, um, but it has a lot of value. Hmm. And one question that I have that I've been thinking about quite a bit is uh, I follow a very contemplative kind of meditative path, um, spiritually and psychologically. I'm doing a lot of meditation. I follow Sam Harris's work, who's a brilliant neuroscientist and meditation teacher. And a big part of those teachings is this idea that all you really have is the present moment. All you really have is right now. And the past is, is gone. The future has yet to come. And what you should really be focusing on is what's happening in front of you right now. And if you're being bothered or disturbed or paralyzed by some past event, instead of you know being stuck there and trying to work through something that's already gone, you should be staying in the present moment and same applies to the future. And I, I think there's great value in that, but um, you're saying there's also value, and, and this relates to our previous conversation as well. There's also value in actually going back into the past and also analyzing and trying to understand what actually happened there. Um, and the, the follow-up point on that, I think, is that many people who do try to do that, who do, who do try to go into their childhoods sort of on their own or, or try to think or process things um, in their past that were difficult or traumatic, they end up overthinking, they end up getting stressed out and depressed. And usually it makes them worse. It usually uh, gives rise to negative emotion and they don't know what to do with it. And so for those people, I think, who maybe you know can't afford counseling or for whatever reason, um, aren't able to uh, follow anything strict or to, or to adapt some kind of specific model, for them, like there's great value in learning to be in the present moment and not to constantly get lost in some past incident that was very difficult for them. But, um, but what you're saying is that it is very important to actually go back and reprocess these things. Well, I think it's fair to say that a lot of my patients had um, sig significant emotions that were originally generated through uh, past events and that these emotions are they don't fully recognize them and you know when they look back at their childhood since none of us has a parallel life that we can compare ourselves with um, they look back and decide that you know maybe things you know really weren't all that bad and that they can always think of somebody who went through worse than they did. Um, and they have um, had to control their emotional reaction to what happened to them uh, when they were younger. Uh, and they had to get, you know, really skilled at controlling that emotional reaction in order to survive those early years. And so now as, you know, adults looking back, um, they're not, fully appreciating just how difficult it was and consequently those emotions are, are still in there and they're looking for a way to express themselves and they have a tendency to do that via the body you know in some people of course you know when those emotions come out in um, their reactions to the world around them you know we've all heard of people who um, have expressed road rage, for example, or they've been um, violent toward uh, their spouse or partner. 
So they're, they're externalizing those emotions. But the people who wind up in my office, um, they are internalizing those emotions. And they, they don't recognize how powerful they are, how negative they are. We're talking about anger, fear, shame, grief, uh, guilt. Um, and they're being expressed via their bodies. And I'll have people who are sitting there in my office they're calmly telling me about uh, some pretty terrible things that happened to them when they were growing up, but their tone of voice is the same that they would use for uh, reading a grocery list. Um, you know, the emotion is just not there um, in their voice, but it is definitely there in their body. So um, for those people, a big part of their healing process is to you know, get in touch with the reality of, of what they're feeling inside. Many of my patients resemble... Uh, dormant volcanoes with boiling magma inside them that they, they don't perceive is there. So how I try to help them is to have them imagine themselves a, a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home uh, while they are watching um, a child from today whom they care about, um, either their own child or someone else's, um, watching that child try to cope with the same environment that they grew up in, that my patient grew up in. And what would it be like for them to be a butterfly on the wall and, and watch a kid they care about try to cope with everything that was going on um, in their life, in the patient's life, uh, when they were a kid? And a lot of times that thought experiment, that exercise, um, makes people very upset because they uh, would never in a million years want an innocent child today to go through everything that they went through. And it helps them to... Uh, recognize that, you know, just how much emotions are there. Uh, one of my patients was a, um, uh, an actress, um, you know, film actress, and she had grown up uh, with um, parents who fought all the time. Uh, she was the only child, so she tried to be the peacemaker. And when she was eight years old, the parents divorced, but they kept living in the same house. Uh, they slept in separate bedrooms, but they kept living in the same house. So she, the situation for her uh, wasn't any better. Um, and she kept minimizing how difficult it was. You know, even, you know, though it was, you know, 15 years of trying to be a, a peacemaker and failing at that on a regular basis, tremendously stressful. But she was trying to tell me it, it wasn't that big a deal until I asked her to imagine uh, a child that she knew um, living in that house, uh, trying to cope just as she had, while she herself was this butterfly on the wall watching. And as she thought about that, she just stared at me. You know, she was a very verbal person, but uh, didn't say anything for, you know, a minute or two, and then finally uh, admitted that after watching that kid try to cope for a week or so, uh, she would shoot herself. Uh, that's how difficult it would have been for her to have to watch that. So the emotions uh, finally were there that she could connect with and, and understand. And that was the beginning of a um, dramatic healing process for her. And yeah, that's a very interesting story. And if you don't mind, like, if we can put a finer point on that, like, what physical pain was she dealing with? Um, she had had... Um, probably half a dozen different symptoms um, over the previous 20 to 25 years. So she had symptoms all over the place. Okay. 
And then she came to you but, and then, so she, there was nothing structurally wrong with her. You, you did all the tests and, and thoroughly screened her. And then she, she came to you and you started asking questions about her childhood and then uh, made her go through this thought exercise. And what, what did the treatment look uh, moving forward for her? If you can recall. Yeah. The, the, uh, you know, everybody's treatment is a little different, but in, in her case, um, uh, there was, to, I asked her to journal about the thought experiment that we had done. I also asked her to write a letter to each of her parents, not to mail it, just to write it, to express all of her thoughts and feelings about them, good and bad, uh, you know, on a piece of paper. Because a lot of times, once a person starts writing, and it can be done on a computer as well, but once they start verbalizing um, those thoughts and feelings, um, a whole lot more comes out uh, than people uh, suspected was in there. And the more of those thoughts and emotions you can uh, express in words, uh, typically the less they will need to express themselves um, as physical symptoms or pain. And I think that was, you know, pretty much it. I might have recommended uh, um, my book or one of the other books out there. Um, I've written two now. The first one was called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. And the second one was a textbook called Psychophysiologic Disorders. Uh, but um, uh, it's written without jargon so that a, a science-oriented reader uh, can read it perfectly easily. And then today, I didn't have this when, when I saw that patient, but uh, there's an app. You know, here we are in the 21st century, and there's a wonderful app uh, called Curable. Uh, which um, you know, has the best ideas from uh, from me and probably a dozen of my colleagues uh, around the country and uh, in Europe um, that they've incorporated into an outstanding user interface. And um, it's it's kind of like having a, um, a therapist in your smartphone. Mm. I've just downloaded it. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll see how that works out. I, I look forward to trying it. Um, yeah, they are they are very careful with the uh, to stick to the science based. Uh, st there are so many um, scams out there in this field. Um, I'm, whenever I see one, I'm, I put it on a Word document that I have, and I think I'm up to 26 different products that have no science behind them at all uh, oh, that wow. are being sold to people as. Uh, treatments for one or more forms of psychophysiologic disorder. And yeah, I mean, they, every single one of them has placebo value, but um, that's about it. Mm. Yeah. And one of the questions I got from an individual who couldn't make it today was they're, they're confused, like what exactly the steps are. And I, I kind of already alluded to this before, but I think, this whole process very much confuses and mystifies people who are very rational and are used to A, B, C, D, one, two, three, take this drug and get better, do this physiotherapeutic protocol and it'll get better. They, they look at this and they're like, what? Like, you don't, there's no clear outline of I have to do one, two, three, and then I'm done. This is very, this is highly subjective and, my doctor's telling me to journal about my thoughts and that seems kind of weird. Like what's going on here? Like there's a lot of uncertainty there. And so some people, they hear about these things and they, 
and they, and and they just then think that this is not for them that this is just some like weird placebo thing or something that's not actually addressing anything in the body and there is that bit of pushback that very kind of rational um linear thinking kind of people have yeah well it's um this process is you know very rational and uh linear but it depends on uh, ob- obtaining insights um, from you know, what people are coping with. Um, you know, if if a person fully understood all of the stresses that they're coping with, and, and I've left one of the big ones out, which is uh, uh, that a lot of patients have a tendency to take care of everybody else in their world, um, but struggle to put themselves on the list of people they take care of. So if they get 10 minutes of free time, they're they're usually thinking about something constructive they should be doing or how something helpful they can do for others rather than taking some time for their own joy. Uh, and that leaves people on a treadmill that they don't get off until their body starts to protest. So that's another common source of uh, stress-related physical symptoms. But um, my patients typically don't recognize um, the magnitude of what they're coping with. So a lot of this depends on getting some insight into a realistic insight into uh, what stresses you have that you're struggling with and, you know, which are the biggest ones uh, that you should go after first. And, you know, my book has an organized approach to, you know, how you diagnose this a linear approach. The, the textbook has this. A lot of the other books that we have listed on our endchronicpain.org website uh, under the resources tab um, uh, are also, you know, again, organized to help people understand what it is they're coping with. Um, And once you understand the the stresses, then you can treat them. You can find ways to uh, reduce them. And in some people, it's, uh, you know, a rapid process. Once they see what's going on, they get better quickly. Um, the in- executive director of our nonprofit suffered uh, up to 20 symptoms at a time for two years and was cured after reading one book on the subject uh, in, in about seven days. Wow. Uh, and she's gone on the record with this, and, and you know, her um, account of this was recorded for our conference last fall, which is you know, also on our website. Uh, so um, you know, that's, that's, you know, an extremely fast turnaround. Um, uh, the first story in my book was a patient who was hospitalized uh, 60 times at a major university hospital in the United States uh, with no diagnosis. Um, 15 years of, of being hospitalized on a regular basis, and they could not figure out what was wrong because they were, you know, focusing on her body and what might, what organ... Uh, or structure might be the problem, but it was a, it was stress that was a problem. And again, she wasn't aware of what the stress was. And as soon as we found out that there was a direct connection between a particular stress in her life and her symptoms, and and I showed her, you know, undeniably that there was a connection there. That you know, she had this light bulb moment where she stared up at the ceiling and said, "Oh my God, I can't believe it." And she never had another episode after that. You know, I, I love the instant cures. I wish I could cure everybody so quickly. I mean, 
to be honest, they're the other end of the spectrum of my patients uh, are people that needed years of psychotherapy to achieve the same outcome. But, you know, everybody that starts down this healing pathway of identifying and treating the stresses um, knows that they're on a pathway toward recovery, whether it's uh, going to be fast or slow. And, and I'm just curious, you mentioned another interesting story. Again, <laughs> um, th- this person, what, what physical symptoms did they have? And um, what was the stress that you identified that you thought was undeniably causing these intense physical symptoms? Yeah, that patient um, was a 50-year-old woman with uh, attacks of uh, severe dizziness accompanied by nausea and vomiting. She would have six to ten of these attacks annually. Uh, they have been going on for 15 years, uh, and about half of the attacks were severe enough that she would need to be in the hospital because she couldn't keep anything down. She saw a dozen specialists, and again, this is a major university hospital. These were, you know, outstanding doctors. Um, she saw a dozen of them, and then in the third year of her illness, she saw a psychiatrist, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, um, Mental health professionals often are not familiar with the kinds of stress issues that can make people physically ill as opposed to giving them mental health problems. And he completely missed the diagnosis, which was that her mother had been verbally and emotionally abusive towards her uh, ever since she was probably three or four years old. And it was still going on. You know, the woman is now 50 years old. Her mother's in her 70s. And mother is still verbally and emotionally abusing her. Um, so that was, you know, a major clue. Uh, and I, I knew that that had to be connected to her illness because it was, you know, you, you don't often hear about um, child abuse that continues on until the person is 50 years old. So that had to be it. But the, the question was to uh, figure out um, how I could demonstrate this connection to her. And that turned out to be very straightforward because um, all, although most of her attacks took place in and around her home community, um, there was a town about 45 minutes from where she lived um, that would always trigger one of her attacks. It never failed. Um, and the connection was that the only time she ever went through this little community was when she was on her way to visit her mother who lived several hours further down the road. So what was happening was she'd get in the car for her, you know, pretty much annual visits to mom, uh, abusive mom, and she she starts driving, you know, her husband's driving and she's sitting in the car and they're going to visit. And she starts thinking about how horrible this visit is going to be because she's just going to get abused the whole time she's there. And by the time she gets 45 minutes down this road, uh, she's physically ill. Her husband has to pull the car over and she's vomiting all over the guardrail. Um, and so I, I described this to her exactly the way I'm describing it to you as why I thought this town was triggering her attacks. Uh, and she was skeptical until I asked her, well, what happens if you drive 45 minutes in some other direction? And the answer, of course, was absolutely nothing. As long as she wasn't going to visit her abusive mom, she was fine. Um, and so there was no doubt at that point that the, about what the trigger was uh, for her symptoms. 
And that left uh, the only, you know, remaining detail to explain was why she got so many attacks in and around her home community. And her husband answered that one. He'd been sitting there listening to us talking hadn't said a word up to that point. He was staring down at his shoes, thinking it was all going to be a waste of time. Uh, and he finally looks up and he says, you know, she used to get a lot of her attacks after she would talk to her mother on the phone. And so there was, you know, yet another connection to the abusive mom and, and the enormous emotional tension. You know, you have to have, as a physician, a certain amount of empathy skills to, to recognize that, you know, any person who's gone through 47 years of verbal and emotional abuse is going to have some emotional tension. But if they're not consciously aware of it, if they don't know how to put it into words, it's going to express itself via the person's body. And once she saw that connection, in her case, that was enough. Um, She was able to talk about it with me. Uh, It no longer needed to come out via her body because now she could think about it. She could journal about it. She could write about it. She could talk to her husband about it. She could set boundaries with the mom so the mom would no longer uh, impact her in this way. Uh, She called me a year later and said she'd gone through the entire year with no episodes. She'd even been able to pass through this little town with no difficulty. So it's kind of a long story, but... Um, it, it's a good illustration of what this process of diagnosis and treatment is like for these patients. Mm. And I remember, I remember actually you told the story last time on the podcast as well, but this story is just so incredible. It's worth repeating a hundred times over. So I appreciate you telling that story again. And it was just as interesting the second time around and still unbelievable. And I'm still kind of, uh, incredulous, but, um, what, you know, when it comes to the treatment, like let's say somebody who has childhood trauma, let's um, maybe put a finer point on what can be done. So um, like journaling, doing things for your own joy, like you said, um, is there anything like psych with like visiting a counselor? Is there anything else that they can do otherwise? Well, like, you know, there's a lot of books. Um, there's the curable app. Um, you know, if, if the trauma was, as a child was really severe. I mean, you know, there's no substitute for an experienced psychotherapist, somebody that, you know, you personally connect with. It can take a while uh, to find a therapist that you feel is helping you and that you have a good uh, personal connection with. Um, You know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to, um, you know, do, you know, a half hour uh, introductory uh, conversations, even over the phone or via zoom, um, with a prospective therapist to make sure you feel um, good about the connection with them, because this is, um, you know, obviously intensely personal stuff and um, you need to feel heard. You need to, you know, feel trust for the therapists to get the um, maximum benefit from it. Um, But the, uh, the goal is again, if, if you've got um, a tremendous amount of negative emotions towards someone for whom you also still care. I mean, the patient I just described still had uh, care for her mother, still you know, was hoping for a degree of reconciliation with her mother. And that was you know, part of the reason why the emotions remained buried for so long. Um, and so you, it's, it's very difficult to uh, realize that you are, in many of 
cases of my patients just hopping mad at somebody that you also care about. Uh, so being able to uh, get in touch with those emotions, recognize those emotions, put them into words, um, it can be a really uh, challenging process. Um, you know, I'm just thinking of a patient now that uh, I worked with last year um, who, um, you know, had been repeatedly mistreated by her dad, um, you know, th basically throughout her life. And, you know, she was having difficulty uh, appreciating just how tough it had been. Uh, it can take um, it can take some time, um, but once you do that, um, once you're able to um, have these emotions um, felt in a way that your thinking brain can work with them and you can put them into words, then um, they're not going to need to um, express themselves via your body uh, any longer. Hmm. It seems like the just the recognition is incredibly powerful in these stories that you're telling. Well, like, what do you think is going on? Like, just like I, I hear this over and over again, and it still sparks a bit of uncertainty and skepticism on my part. Like, just just like recognizing your trauma and understanding the toll it had on your mind and your body. Like, like that seems kind of simple and kind of easy, but at the same time, it's it's very difficult, but what, what do you think is going on there? Like just like what, ha what, what do you think is happening neurophysiologically when you recognize your emotions and your past traumas? Well, the, um, your brain is constantly getting signals from the world. I mean, it's almost like your brain, um, is living in a, dark closet with the door closed um, and getting all these signals from the outside world and needing to interpret them uh, in some way as to to figure out you know what's going on out there you know is it is it you know a clear blue sky or is it raining uh, um, is a determination that your brain would make from the signals it gets from your eyes but it also gets signals from inside your body, and it has to um, make an interpretation of, of what's going on there. And for um, a lot of people from difficult childhood environments, they, um, they get signals um, from their body that um, would, in a, from, in a kid from a healthy environment, would indicate to them, I am feeling angry. That is, that is what um, these signals from my body um, are telling me, that um, I, am, I am angry about something, or I am afraid of something, or I feel guilt or shame about something. Um, but in kids from an unhealthy environment, uh, an abusive environment, uh, a dysfunctional environment, when they get those same signals, um, they are not learning how to interpret it um, as an emotion. Um, so let's take, um, maybe I can make this example clearer by imagining two people um, at a family dinner and one of them has grown up in a healthy environment and the other one has not. And each of them begins to feel 
an uncomfortable sensation in their abdomen. And the one who's come from a, a healthy environment is going to start thinking, all right, why am I feeling this? Am I having a, an ulcer? Am I having uh, indigestion? Um, am I having um, uh, an emotion? Uh, and they'll be able to figure it out, um, what's going on. But the person from the unhealthy environment with the same signals coming from their body, um, if it's an emotion, they're not necessarily going to be able to figure out that that's what it is. Uh, instead, they're going to feel it as um, a discomfort of some kind. They're not going to say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling angry in this environment, or I'm feeling fear, or I'm feeling shame right now. That's, that's what this sensation from my body is telling me. They're not going to be able to have that, that interpretation because of the uh, childhood environment they came from. And instead, they're going to feel they're going to feel pain or nausea, um, or there's going to be, you know, their bowels are going to act up. So, you know, that's um, fundamentally what's what's going on here. And the the treatment is to help people. And, and did, uh, did just one thing, Doc, I'm still a little confused about that. So you, you're yeah. saying that the, the, individ, the child in the healthy family, he's able to identify the emotion like this is anger, yes. this is yeah. fear, this is anxiety. And the one in the unhealthy situation won't be able to identify it. And they're going to feel it as, you know, um, uh, a discomfort, um, discomfort, pain, nausea. Um, it may manifest as, you know, bowel problems. Um, it's, it's going to be interpreted as something physically wrong, um, even though it's an emotion. The, uh, the brain is not able to draw the correct conclusion because they didn't, they didn't learn about those conclusions uh, from their childhood environment. Interesting. Can you hear me still? Uh, I can now, yes. Yeah, sorry. My mic wasn't working there for a second. Okay. Um, and when it comes to, again, the solutions for this, um, you talk about journaling, um, what, what do you think is happening there? What, why is that so effective of being able to express your thoughts in words? Like you talk about how like you kind of vaguely talked about when you do that, then it, uh, oh, I lost you again, Rob. Looks like I'm having Wi-Fi issues Am I back. <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. If something happens again, then my friend Pedro is going to take over. All right. Um, and, and you do have to go by around 5.15, um, unless somebody has any uh, important questions to ask. Um, but since I'm having issues, I, maybe I'll just get to the more important stuff. Um, uh, first of all, I was asking about journaling. Um, what is happening sort of uh, neurophysiologically, you think, that's so important? Yeah, I... Um... I usually have people journal after doing a thought experiment, you know, either the one about the butterfly on the wall or maybe uh, journaling about what they would say to a child who had survived what they survived. Um, but the, the goal here is uh, for people to um, put emotions into words. Um, and writing has an ability to help people uh, connect with um, ideas and emotions and you write one down and another one has a tendency to come to mind. Um, 
There's a, uh, a variation on this that uh, my colleague, Dr. Schubiner, r- recommends um, and that I use myself where a person will spend five or ten minutes writing down their uh, thoughts as quickly as possible about an emotionally significant person or event. Um, they'll write words, phrases, sentence fragments, uh, scribbling them down with no rhyme or reason, no punctuation or worry about spelling or grammar, just to get as many uh, concepts onto a page as they can in a short space of time. And the process is designed to bypass the thinking part of your brain and try to reach the unconscious and just let um, those words, phrases, thoughts, emotions uh, flow onto the page as fast as possible. And then once you've done that and you've finished that process, Uh, Take a step back, look at what you've written, and then start writing complete sentences uh, to see if you can make sense of everything you've just scribbled down so far. Oh, we've lost you there. Oh, sorry. Okay, now you're back. All right. Um, That can be a very useful exercise for um, connecting you with emotions you didn't know were there. Um, but I've, I've seen, um, you know, th- that unmailed letter. You know, when you write a letter to um, someone who mistreated you when you were a kid, you know, again, not to mail it, just to write it. And so many of my patients have had tremendous therapeutic benefits from that. One of my patients uh, took the letter that he'd written to his father's grave and read it to him. He said it took him four or five hours to read the whole thing. And by the end, he was shouting. Um, but after he did that, he was physically much, much better. Looks like I'm having some issues. So I think Pedro is going to take over here. Um, uh, if it shuts me off, then he'll just continue. But, uh, I did, I did just, the last question I had was about joy. You mentioned a lot about doing things for the joy of, of just doing them. Why yes. is that? So, why is that so important? Like, what does that do to somebody who's struggling with this pain? Well, it, um, it does a couple of things. <clears throat> Number one, it teaches you that you are worthy. Um, a huge issue for uh, many of my patients is their self-esteem. They've been made to feel like second-rate human beings, uh, often for their whole lives. And once you decide that um, your early life was the moral equivalent of being born in a dangerous wilderness, um, then you can recognize that it took heroic perseverance on your part to emerge from that, to get through that. And once you can start thinking of yourself uh, positively in those terms, um, then you can find a way to take um, a block of time every week on a regular basis um, to find activities that have no purpose but your own joy. Uh, And that's a huge stress reliever. It's also an affirmation that you are worthy of doing this for yourself, that you're putting yourself on the list of people you take care of because you deserve it, because of, you know, how much you've gone through and overcome. Um, And that, you know, begins uh, to support a 180 degree flip in your self-image from negative to positive. And that makes a huge difference. Um, in, in all of these areas that I've been talking about therapeutically and the, you know, taking time for your own joy, um, 
is a big part of that. Mm. That makes total sense. Okay, before this mic stops working again, like it has been the past few minutes, I'll just quickly say anybody else who has any questions that they want to ask Dr. Clark, now is the time to do so. Otherwise, we'll wrap it up. Any other questions? Yeah, I'll just say again, we got tremendous resources on endchronicpain.org. So I definitely point people there as a good place for uh, following up. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Clark. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Rob. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you and uh, with Pedro as well. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks.